I'm Alan Watt, heading through the Matrix, and I'm talking about an article right now that's on Democracy Now!, homegrown terrorism, and an act that's been put through, a bill that's been put through to deal with this, mainly through the, the universities that are going to set up different bodies. It said here, the bill to establish two government-appointed bodies to study, monitor, and propose ways of curbing what it calls homegrown terrorism and extremism in the United States. The first body, a national commission, would convene for 18 months. The university-based Center for Excellence would follow. A Center for Excellence, I love, I love the terminology, it's all double-speak, would follow, bringing together academic specialists to recommend laws and other measures. Critics say the definition of extremism and terrorism is too vague and its mandate even more broad. Of course it is, that's how it's written. Under a false veil of expertise and independence, they say the government-appointed commissions could be used as ideological cover to push through higher, harsher laws. Following last month's approval in the House, the Senate version is expected to go before the Judiciary Committee this week. Two guests join us. So then they go on uh, to discuss more and more of this and how it's really going to uh, target students. It's going to really start looking at students, those who have radical ideas like freedom and rights and stuff like that. Anything that's different from the, the new American centuries policies of uh, a dictatorial system where you just do as you're told, that's what it's all about. And you've seen the riots that were caused uh, by the, the provocateurs at many of these anti-global meetings when the parents were all swigging their beer and watching sports or the soaps uh, and the students were trying to stop this because the only ones who, who knew what was going on with these global uh, treaties that were signing, well, let's just stop that too, is to try and uh, intimidate and coerce people in university not to participate in demanding uh, that this dictatorial-type system go on the way it's doing and you're actually going to get worse. So people should look into this. It's quite amazing to, to, to see what is published out there and how the general public reacts to it. But as you know, you're living under a system of intense indoctrination, so you can't blame the parents too much. Many of them get burned out with life in itself by the time they've had 30, 40 years of indoctrination and television consumption. Their, their life is rather bizarre. It's not like it's supposed to be. As they, that's what they think. Uh, most people are dysfunctional in their relationships today. Uh, they've adopted the new age relationships that were promoted through talk shows and on major television. Uh, how you, should, you were supposed to be and how forgiving, accepting you were supposed to be about everything until nothing is functional anymore. And you cannot change human nature, no matter how trendy you try to be. But that's how people are. They try to adapt into these, these new, new age roles that's projected to them. And that, again, was talked about by Professor Carl Quigley in his book, Tragedy and Hope. It was begun in the 60s on a big-time level. So when they were watching all this stuff, their, their children are off getting some education and finding out that big things are happening in the world and that big, big, big corporate money and very old money, old family money, uh, is involved in setting up the new structures that they're going to have to live through. They're going to have to live through these new new types of governmental systems and societies 
and they don't like what they see coming up. So they've been protesting, and we've found that the provocateurs are often police in disguise, pretending they're students, and they start off riots, and that's all the parents see at home. They see the riots on the television and think, ah, oh, students are always rebelling. That's how it works. Very, very simple. It must be true, seeing is believing it's on television. That's how simple it works. People should watch the movie Wag the Dog. Excellent portrayal of what they were going to do with Yugoslavia. Uh, a year before they actually launched the war on Yugoslavia. And uh, pretty well everything that happened during that war was portrayed in the movie a year before. All the steps that they went through. And even had the place names right too. So life is a script. And the big things that happen in this world also happen to be scripted. As I say, they're planned. Long-term planning. And that's what the foundations are involved in. Foundations, their power and influence. Excellent book to get to. And it shows you how these foundations are tied in completely, 100%, with the old established feudal system, the feudal families. And your CIA for America, Mossad for Israel, MI6 and MI5 for Britain, and on and that goes. They're all completely intertwined because you have to have the wealth to plan the future, to hire all the employees, thousands and thousands of employees in think tanks working on each specialized area of what you think of as culture, and how to promote it to the people, new ideas to the people, how to indoctrinate them more. And they have unlimited wealth, so it has to combine the banking industry, it has to combine uh, the, the secret services, the data collection systems, and all the departments of uh, bureaucratic government to get all of this working together. Now, one of the conditions of the lend-lease programs that was done during World War II, was debated during World War, World War II that the U.S. would be the only country with money after the war, and they would lend out to all of the countries that participated on their side. Britain was one of the countries that got part of the lend-lease, but one of the conditions that was made in it was that Britain, and mind you, Britain was all for it. This is the trick. It really, they tried to save face for the monarchy and the ruling elite by putting it this way. They said that the U.S. had demanded that Britain eventually integrate with Europe, stop further wars, which is exactly what Britain had told them, you say, because the elite of Europe were all after this too. And it was on the fringes of power, written by the personal secretary of Winston Churchill, that's what Winston Churchill was hoping for all during World War II because as he was telling the British people to go off and fight the nasty Hun, as he called them, in propaganda uh, exposés. He was also telling his peer group at parties every night of the week where he got well drunk, well plastered. He was telling them uh, this is the best thing ever happened. We'll have a unified Europe out of this. So one, one face for the public and one for his peer group. So it wasn't really the U.S. that demanded it. That's why they put it on paper officially to save the face, as I say, of the monarchy, who also was all for it. After all, the monarchy and their, their relatives across the, the, the channel in Europe, uh, the other royal families, all own, they, they own in common, they own uh, the whole of Europe. It's their land, they're still monarchies. There's not a law passed over there that doesn't be, doesn't have to be signed by the Queen. And technically, the Queen still has the right to dissolve any parliament she doesn't like. So how can you have democracy and all the rights for the people when one person has the right to demolish the whole lot at the stroke of a pen? Well, of course.
don't have bites at all. And that's what people are gradually finding out over over there. The U.S., because it's got such massive internal wealth, along with such massive poverty, too, it coexists. But you have internal wealth that will keep it propped up for a while. Uh, they have to finish off the job of standardizing the rest of the world under the World Bank system. And bringing in, through UNESCO, a generation, bringing up a generation, and all of the conquered countries who will then become uh, the picked leaders who will do what they're told and be well paid and will enjoy it and marry wives of similar caliber. And then you'll have a new ruling class that running the same standardized system as the West is running. Uh, that's the agenda. But as the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs has said in books as far back as the 1930s, eventually the U.S., as it's finishing off the job, will gradually decline financially itself, or also much money to the, to the various world banks, that um, the world money lenders, that they will sink and come down and then submerge itself into the very system it helped promote. That That's what was all discussed in their old books at their global meetings, and I have these old books here. And I would read more of them, but really people don't really want to know. People don't want to know because we all live in hope. We're taught that, that spend, spend, spend will never stop, and the plastic is so freely available, and that there's no tomorrow, you know, like today. It will never come. That's how people are. They're egocentric. And how did they become egocentric? Well, it only took, as I say, World War II, and then a, a little boom a boom in the economy, give, them, give the peasants a little bit more money than they're used to and let them buy some of the things they've never had and they'll quickly forget what the past was like. And that's true enough. One generation grows up never knowing, never ever knowing that great-grandpa didn't have a flushing toilet or he may have to carry his water in from a well somewhere or something like that. They have no idea. They think it's always been like this. You'll find most people don't think terribly deeply at all and whatever history they're given is given through Hollywood, the Hollywood movies, or this comedy act called the History Channel, where like George Orwell's um, uh, particular job in the, the book 1984, uh, the main character, Winston, worked at the Department of Information where they altered all the past. And they would take big chunks out of the past and, and put it down the memory hole where it got burned, and then they would take blank pages and repaste things on as looking at old newspaper clippings and, and print out absolute lies. And that's what the History channels for. It's just simply more deception. Story, his story. Whose story is it now? And that's how you create a reality for the public. Uh, we have the most mind-bombed generation that's ever existed. No other generation grew up with, with the teat of the television brought up watching cartoons from children that could hardly walk uh, all the babysat in fact by television by cartoons that themselves had the predictive programming in the content and, and brought up on fantasy and indoctrination and emotive uh, imprinting on your brain with certain scenes there's been no generation like this in, in history the television was the greatest tool ever so much so that Britain in the 50s, were, through government grants, were paying a company called DER, which of course is read backwards, 
import thousands and thousands and thousands of television sets, used ones from the U.S., and refurbishing them so that the British people could get them. And for the first time, the, the ordinary British people, who most of whom didn't even own their own homes, they were all rental homes from the local councils, your taxpayers' money built these, these homes and you rented from them. And they didn't have uh, a credit of any kind. It was unknown. Unless you had collateral uh, for the credit you were going to borrow, you didn't get any credit. But for the first time, they made it available so people could buy television sets. It was very important that they all had TV sets. Then they could all get the same indoctrination. And the BBC had already run the, the radio, and they set up the BBC radio for propaganda purposes. That's in their own history books. Uh, took over that, of course, right away. And they were the only station for many, many years broadcasting in Britain, broadcasting television. And uh, they gave us this fake past and all the rest of it, quaint stories and all how middle-class people lived in the Middle Ages and all that, or in Victoria's time. All fantasy where the majority of public lived in the squalor pretty well. Uh, and they never really had any breaks because it was war after war after war, un unending wars since the creation of the Bank of England, which gave the, the Parliament the right to tax the public to pay for the debts that they incurred. The greatest scam ever invented. But in Britain, it was vital everyone have a TV set to get their indoctrination. And I can remember when I was small in a mining town, walking on the weekends, looking up at all the adults, they were all out walking and they went down the park and they used to bring towels and they sit in towels and chat. Hundreds and hundreds of families would do that. And everyone talked and conversed and passed information back and forth and that was communication. And within a year, a year that all stopped. It was dead. You go to the park every weekend, there was nobody there. Nobody there. You'd pass all the, the houses on the way home and it was getting dusk. You'd see this flickering blue lights everywhere. The TV had taken over. The eye of Lucifer was everywhere, just flickering away there. And sure enough, you started to visit people, and they could not turn that thing off when you visited. You still see that today. They can't, it's hypnotic, you see. And even when they're talking to you, their eyes are still fixed on it. Even when they turn the volume down, their eyes are still fixed on it, and their jaws hanging down. Hypnotic. The flicker rate is in sequence with, with your actual uh, brain patterns. It was designed to be that way. And we'll be back with more after the following messages. Six feet four He fights with missiles And with spears He's all of Thirty-one And he's only seventeen He's been a soldier For a thousand years He's a Catholic A Hindu An atheist A Jain A Buddhist And a Baptist And a Jew And he knows He shouldn't kill and he knows he always will Kill you for me, my friend, and me for you 
fighting for Canada. He's fighting for France. He's fighting for the USA. And he's fighting for the Russians. And he's fighting for Japan. And he thinks we'll put an end to war this way. And he's fighting for democracy. He's fighting for the Reds. He says it's for the peace of all. He's the one who must decide who's to live and who's to die, and he never sees the writing on the wall. But without him, how would Hitler have condemned him at Lobau? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war, and without him, all this killing can't go on. He's the universal soldier, and he really is to blame. His orders come from far away no more. They come from here and there, and you and me, and brothers, can't you see? This is not the way we put the end to war. Hi, Alan Ward, back with cutting through the matrix. And just talking about how television has been used as the greatest indoctrination tool ever devised up until really the internet came along. And their big boys are moving in on that too, big time, to make sure they know what content you're going to see and what's going to be on it. But as I say, that was the mandate in Britain and other European countries. They all get television sets to make sure that the thoughts that the people had would be approved and authorized by specific agencies uh, working together with government in Britain, specifically the Tavistock Institute, which led the world really on this type of indoctrination process. This has also become a mandate in China, who said that everybody in China has to have a television set within the next year. That's their goal there too, because they know they're copying the Britain style, the British style. It's a great indoctrination tool. Now, I've talked about Skinner before with uh, his behaviorism and his psychology and how he was a great hero to all the big boys when they, they concluded that we're nothing but animals and like all animals, you can basically recondition us, you might say, reprocess us and make us behave in different ways by behavior modification. And uh, this has never stopped. Uh, what's happened, in fact, is increased all these testing on children and people because we don't seem to mind now. We're in a scientific age. Science is now the new religion, and whatever they say, it must be good for us, just like all the old religions were too. And here's a report here from Scientific American on a test that's been done on children, November the 9th, 2007. Could robots become your toddler's new best friend? School children come to love humanoid classmate after spending five months with him. By, and this is quite the name, this one, Nick Hill Swami Nathan. Swami Nathan as a pseudonym, obviously. It was another robot. This is um, Machine Amongst Us, or Among Us. Scientists found that a humanoid robot was accepted by a group of toddlers after several months of exposure. And this is from the Fumahide Tanaka Machine Perception Lab, US, UCSD. 
According to the robots community, it's unlikely that any robot now on the market could hold your attention for more than 10 hours. Actually, if you have a, a robot dog carrying dust on a closet shelf, you probably already know that. It's true enough where, where people have fans. They give us fans and they end up in the garage, generally with the skis and everything else. A new study, however, indicates that this threshold is poised to be broken, at least if the humans interacting with the machines are youngsters. The researchers found that a two-foot, that's a 61-centimeter-tall metal man easily won over a classroom of tykes, that's, that's with a T, aged 16 to 24 months, who intermittently spent time with it over a five-month period. Our results suggest that current robot technology is surprisingly close to achieving autonomous bonding and socialization with human toddlers for significant periods of time. University of California, San Diego, researchers report in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, USA. QRIO is the name, Q-R-I-O, a robot programmed with a slew of social functions, was placed in UC San Diego's Early Childhood Education Center 45 times over the five-month period, or five-month observation period. For the first 27 sessions, the robot was allowed access to its full arsenal, that's a, a war terminology arsenal here, of programmed social behaviors. In addition, a controller could send commands to the humanoid, prompting it to wave, dance, sit, stand, etc., although there was a lag time between the prompt and when the robot made the movement. The tots began to increasingly interact with the robot and treat it more like a peer, an equal, you see, that's what peer is, than an object during the first 11 sessions. The level of social activity increased dramatically when researchers added a new behavior to Curio's repertoire. If a child touched the humanoid on its head, it would make a giggling noise. The contingency coupled with the positive reaction of giggling made clear to the children that the robot was responsive to them and served often to initiate interaction episodes, says study co-author Fumahide Tanaka, a researcher at UC San Diego's Institute for Neural, Neural Computation. Yeah? Neural Computation, that's the bunch they're into interfacing you with the computer too, with little wires and all that in your brain. And at Sony Intelligence Dynamics, Sony, you thought it was Sony Electronics, but it's actually standard oil of New York, right, Sony? Intelligence Dynamics Laboratories Incorporated. For 15 sessions, midway through the experiment, QRIO was programmed to repeatedly dance to the same song rather than interact with the, the call it kids here. Remember the, how they would dehumanize children in the Communist Manifesto and what Lenin talked about by replacing human terms with animal terms and debased terms, and now kid is normal, you don't see child anymore. During these trials, remember a kid is a young goat. During these trials, the children become far less interested in the friendly automaton. For the final three sessions, however, Curio could once again unleash its entire social arsenal, a social arsenal. Tanaka and his colleagues scored the quality of social interactions primarily based on where children touched the robot. A teddy bear and an inanimate toy robot named Robbie. They're very, very good with their great imagination. Robbie the robot accompanied Curio during most of the observation period. The teddy bear was introduced first and prior to the introduction of the robots. It was very popular, but the stuffed animal was lost in the shuffle when Curio and Robbie came on the scene. Though the toddlers often manhandled Robbie, 
they eventually began touching Curio in a pattern similar to the way they touched one another, mostly on its arms and legs or hands. The only time they deviated from this behavior was when Curio was programmed to giggle, at which point they frequently petted his face and head. Another indication that little humans viewed RoboKid as a compeer was the way they reacted when Curio ran out of juice and lay down as if to take a nap. Some of the children would try to wake and help it up, whereas others would cover it with a blanket. Our work suggests that touch integrated on the timescale of a few minutes is a surprisingly effective index of social connectedness, Tanaka says. And I'll be back with more of this robot stuff after the following messages. Demand. This is We the People Radio Network. Millions of people. And Connaught Laboratories, in fact, that uh, 
Corrupt Laboratories was born uh, for bacterial warfare purposes. Then they went into the blood products industry. I'm sure they're always connected with the other part too. These things are always connected for, for the whole of their existence. And Connaught went under apparently or changed hands after the, the blood scandal. They, they killed off most of the hemophiliacs in Canada. But then Bertrand Russell would be very proud to kill off what they claimed were useless eaters, those who were a burden on society. Nothing happens by chance. We're always taught it's just bureaucratic bungling. That's how it's put over to the general public. So my job really, as long as I talk, is to tell the public what is. I don't tell you what is and then give you some escape out of it by promising you that the aliens will be beaten back off into space or or anything like that, or you just eat this particular herb and you'll be cured of every ill that could possibly befall you. I just tell you the bad news because my job is to wake you up into a, a higher state of consciousness, a higher state of reality. And hopefully amongst those who wake up to this higher state, there'll be enough people with natural human empathy for others to, to, to alter the course that we're on. Because the course we're on in this hedonistic society which has been purposely created for us, they said in their own books a long time ago, they created a hedonistic population where we'd be disconnected from each other. We wouldn't care about each other. That's where the war on the family was. Remember the war? The family was classified not only in the communist system but in the Royal Institute for International Affairs own manifesto. Uh, the family was an obsolete unit. In fact, it was in the way of progress because um, and, and parents who gave their values to their children were contaminating their children. And so both the East and the West, who all had the same bankers and payroll guys and aristocracy running the whole thing, had concluded that they'd have to remake society, remake the shape of society and alter the relations, in fact, destroy the relationships within society by every means possible. Russell himself was given permission in the early 20s to start experimental schools up and encourage pre-pubertal sex amongst them to see if the more that they can indulge in this, the less they'd be, in, be able to bond emotionally for any length of time with a particular person. That was all to destroy the family unit. And Lord Bertrand Russell, as he became, um, was all for this particular thing. He was, he was the one who also came up with the contamination of ideas. You find the, the big psychological associations, the American Psychological Association and Psychiatry too, have published lots of work on, on how this family-type system had to, had to be destroyed and how everyone was brought up with the old values, the old values of caring and bonding and standing up for your family members and so on, um, was dangerous in the upcoming society and how they had to destroy it. They classified it, in fact, as mental illness. Those who were born up, uh, brought up uh, in the 50s to the 70s were technically classified as being mentally ill because they still had contaminated ideas from previous generations and contaminated and distorted values. So we saw a war by the culture industry on the public to reshape everything that comprises society. And 
incredibly successful. Because most folk didn't even know it was a war on them at all. They didn't know it had even begun or was continuing and still is continuing. They had no idea. Most of the time they thought they were simply being entertained with movies and music and talks in newspapers or radio talks with big, big famous hosts and so on, giving them new perceptions into how they should be. And as they've always known at the top, the public mimic what they see. They have no faith in their own opinions, so they always take the opinions of experts. Society where experts would give you all of your opinions. Well, that's happened. That's happened. Moral relativism was pushed so there are no bad things anymore. It's all, everything's a matter of your own opinion. How you judge things. There's no good or evil anymore. It's, again, uh, simply how things turn out in the end. Was it beneficial to someone or not? That's how they, they judge it. And your opinion is as good as anyone else's with moral relativism. In olden times, you had common law. Common law, even prior to the name common law, was simply called your social laws of your tribes. Everyone knew them. They were very simple. You didn't need lawyers, and that's why law, real law is very simple. You don't need people to be middlemen to decipher them for you. And everyone would be brought up in the tribes to know what the laws were, what rights and wrongs were. And they were based on human nature. They evolved themselves quite naturally. With the advent of the legal systems, of course, we saw all of that go out the window. And if you've got money now, you can law can be whatever you want it to be. You can get off with anything you want to get off with if you've got enough money. Uh, that's what law now is all about. But law also has to do with moral relativity. And as long as you're within the bounds of your duty as a taxpayer and, and do everything properly, what you do in your personal life or what other taboos or little laws you break, you can get off with them if you have the right kind of lawyer. Because it's all relative, as you say. The new religion is not new at all. It's actually coming from the old Kabbalah. Kabbalah, and that was pushed through high masonry and the OTO branch of it too, which took over the uh, the, the culture industry, uh, the music and the acting industries. They pushed that same agenda of moral relativism. And at a, a big Hollywood meeting of science fiction writers and producers, all the big ones were there, each one was asked in turn, all these guys who wrote sci-fi and horror, uh, what they thought of evil. Was there such a thing as true evil? Everyone gave the same, exact same Kabbalistic answer. That no, they always gave that this, this allegory of a line, a line, a straight line. And if it's over one side, you, you'll say it's evil, or over the other side, it's, it's good. And then, then it followed that up by saying it's all a balance, it's all a balance. And, and that really, um, there's no such thing as evil. It's just the, the, a human judgment on the outcome of something. Is it beneficial or not? And that's how the Kabbalah deciphers good or evil. And I'll be back with more of this after the following messages.
Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Now, for those who don't have my books, I'd ask you to buy them. Don't ask me for other authors. I get people all the time ask me for lists of authors from books to read and haven't bought mine. And they won't waste my time on that. I survive on the same the same stuff as you are all forced to use. And I certainly do appreciate when people buy the books. I don't like going to an empty mailbox day after day. And also look into my site and you'll find out how to how to do the ordering. It's all very simple. And for those who want to donate, they can also do it too. That keeps me going and I can come out here and tell you the bare facts. I'll tell you stuff you don't know as well. And for those who are really determined to go a bit higher, I can also have them call me once in a while too and I'll fill them in a lot of stuff that I don't say over there. Now, I've also mentioned the fact that we're all owned basically in this commoner system and this aristocracy at the top. Uh, running our, our whole lives and planning it all through foundations and their high bureaucratic systems within government. That's, these are the important ones, the bureaucrats, the lifers. Many of them are members of the Royal Institute for International Affairs or CFR or Rhodes Scholars or all three. And, and they're not elected by anyone. And since World War II, uh, like H.G. Wells has said, these bureaucrats can can converse with their counterparts right at the United Nations and bypass the, the front men, the politicians, the guys that are put there to catch the rotten eggs and tomatoes that you throw at them. That's their job. That's all they're really there for as a, as a, as a show for the public. But to show you how, how we're, we're owned and how this new class system is coming into effect, and it was talked about quite a few years ago, uh, through genetics and genetic engineering, how they're going to create a, a new class system, those who are genetically enhanced, but also to eventually terminate those children who will be born who have what they claim will have any defects that could cost society money. Yeah. And that's just what all this particular uh, next item is about. And this is, this is from the, 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 the Star Tribune. November the 10th, 2007. Five Drops of Blood is an Invasion of Privacy by Chen Mei Yi of the Star Tribune. And it says here, A phlebotomist collected blood from Shamar Jamal Brown in September, two days after the child was born. Minnesota's newborn screening program identifies babies who may have any of more than 50 disorders. And this is going to have it put across to us. About 24 hours after a baby is born in Minnesota, a hospital nurse pricks a heel and squeezes five drops of blood. Three blood spots go straight to the State Department of Health Lab in St. Paul. Two spots are sent by courier to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Within days, the family will know if the child has one of more than 50 rare hereditary conditions that can now be detected and treated. Ha <laughs> ha. For little Ella Madison, this is probably just a fake story, but to get some across, it may have made the difference between life and death. Ella has cystic fibrosis. It always used poor unfortunates and so on. There's nothing to do with that at all. Where mucus clogs the lungs and pancreas, such children can die from lung infections or starve because they can't absorb food. Because the disease was diagnosed at Ella's birth, she initially started daily drugs and nebulizers. A charmer with big 
blue eyes, but and dazzling smile, she now appears to be healthy, normal, 19 months. And so this is a, a propaganda piece here, I'm sure. But the state screening program that likely saved Ella is now at risk as Minnesota becomes the battleground in the first big clash between genetics and privacy in the DNA age. Why here? A conference of factors. Minnesota screens newborns for more disorders than most other states. Minnesota also passed a law last year protecting the privacy of all genetic data. It's their property, you see. And Minnesota happens to be home to a very determined nurse-turned-privacy advocate, Twyla Brass, or Bracey. Bracey leads a small but vocal group of privacy advocates who say Minnesota's newborn screening amounts to involuntary genetic testing with unknown future implications for employment, and that's very true. They discussed this 15 years ago in major newspapers. And insurance. They won't give you insurance if they claim you may be at risk. Doctors and public health officials counter there's a small intrusion that can save about 140 babies a year from death or a serious disability. Utter nonsense. Both sides say they're taking the issue to the legislature next year. We live in an age of predictive medicine, said Mark McCann, manager of the newborn screening program at the Minnesota Department of Health. That throws up challenges for ethicists and legal experts. Should parents' consent be required before testing? Should the state ask parents' permission to store the blood spots for research? Who should have access? Who would profit? Newborn screening is newborn genetic testing, said Bracey, president of the Citizen Council of on Healthcare. We do not yet know how it could be used tomorrow. Yes, we do. We do know how it's going to be used tomorrow. Grace said she's not against newborn testing, but thinks parents should choose where to do it. Doctors and health officials say Brazy's individualistic approach imperils a mother load of medical data they can use to improve the health of thousands and prevent untold suffering from undiagnosed genetic conditions without violating privacy. Bracey has the ear of some legislators, such as Representative Mary Liz Holberg. That's from the Republic against Lakeville, who calls Braze a David against Goliath of the medical industry, sketches this scenario. Five years from now, when there's a breach in the computer system and 200,000 of your youngest residents have been compromised, you wouldn't want parents to be totally unaware that the state is storing this data. That's when we're going to be in really big trouble. So here you are again. You see, they're at it in every, every sphere because... Many, many years ago, even back in the 20s, Russell and others, all the friends and descendants of Darwin and so on, and the Huxleys were talking about the time would come when they'd have the right, uh, through testing, to decide who could breed with whom, even to have offspring in the first place, and have the right to sterilize those who they would deem to be unfit or that their offspring could have problems. And this is what it's all about because the eugenicist movement is all integrated into this big monolithic system that, we're, that runs our lives for us. Uh, they run the eugenics sphere of, of it all, and they are the ones in charge of who gets the funding in all these programs. And all the rest of them down the ladder just do as they're told and execute their orders. But we're going into a society of, of a new caste type of system. And there's no better movie to see than the one that was called Gattaca. Gattaca. Good movie about uh, a new uh, class system or caste system where those who are genetically enhanced will get all the best jobs. 
and those who were just born the ordinary old way and had all the defective genes in them that made us normal, you know, um, will be second-class citizens who are ruled by this new type of elite. And this is the nightmare we're living in. It's a, it's a nightmare. It's really always been here. And I say, we've all lived through it. We've watched the progress of it, if you were conscious at all. Most people haven't been conscious most of their lives. A lot of people go to their deaths, never ever knowing that all the major events that happened in their lives were planned that way. I'm talking about wars and and big changes through policies and, and all of this kind of stuff, or work leaving the country. Everything that happened in your life was planned as a timetable long before you were even born. Uh, even the year 2010 for the integration of the Americas was planned and, and actually published uh, at certain meetings during World War Two. In fact, you can go further back to a Rosicrucian meeting where they had a big a big meeting in the U.S. Uh, and they brought, invited all the other Masonic, Freemasonic institutions to attend. Uh, they also published it there that uh, it eventually unites the Americas and the flag of the Eagle of America would be united with the Eagle of Mexico. We find in the writings of Lenin, early writings of Lenin, early 1900s, he talked about the end of the millennium and the beginning of the new, and that's when the big changes would happen, when government institutions would be so, that they'd be so prolific, they'd be stepping over each other's toes or on each other's toes all the time, so many departments, and then they'd bring in the brand new system that was backed up by his counterpart for the aristocracy in Britain, who said exactly the same thing as Lord Bertrand Russell once again. And that's just to show you that they were all working together. They knew what the long-term plan was, the long-term agenda. And when I listened to a meeting at the World for the World Bank, where Mr. Rockefeller got up, and Rothschild was here too, I believe, Rockefeller talked about this coming agenda and how society would go through a period of massive upheaval. And he says this generation, this present generation, unfortunately will be the cannon fodder for this. Because you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And that's how we all are. These people were broken eggs. But from Hamish, myself, in Canada, on a cold, wintry night, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you.